This is episode 315 of the AWS podcast, released on June 2, 2019. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS podcast. Simon Lesher here with you. Great to have you back, and I'm joined in studio by a very special guest. I'm joined by Paul Hawkins, who's a specialist security architect here at AWS. Welcome, Paul. Hi, thanks for having me on. Good to have you here. Now, we are talking about a really simple topic, easy uh, encryption. <laughs> There's not much to it. In all seriousness, though, this sort of came about because we work in the same office and, and we, we bump into one another from time to time and have uh, deep and meaningful chats about the world, technology, security in general and in particular. And one of the things that came up is how much the application of encryption from a practical standpoint has changed in IT. And, and I think the conversation happened because we were talking about Werner's statement that uh, you should uh, dance like no one's watching and encrypt like everyone is. And the fact that it's actually easier than ever to do that, however, what we often find is that customers just don't know what's available to them, do they? Yeah, that's right. And it's, um, it's not the late 90s anymore. It's not this kind of, oh, I can't possibly turn on SL or I can't encrypt because it's going to be too costly or too performance uh, impacting. It's um, We've made it really easy at AWS to kind of check a box and get the benefit of an easy encryption on our platform. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that the performance one is probably the one that I hear a lot of still. And I think you're right, that's a hangover from from uh, older folks like ourselves, uh, where in the, like there was, a t- there was a time when turning on encryption was a good 20 to 40% hit and you had to really think carefully. Plus you needed a bunch of specialized hardware, like edge stuff and offloads and co-processors and it was hard. Yeah, crypto is hard, um, which is why we have some really, really smart people working in our KMS teams and our cloud HSM teams, um, certificate manager teams, making it easy for customers to take advantage of a bunch of really smart people to get good outcomes for when they build applications for their customers. Definitely. So the, the intent of today's conversation is to help our customers apply this encryption in a practical way in their environment. And maybe what we'll start with though first is saying before we get into the sort of the tools and what buttons you press and things you should think about that there's kind of a few things and we're going to drastically simplify for purposes of time. There's a few things you need to think about when you're doing encryption. You need to think about, well, the algorithms you're going to use. And there is the saying, I think, uh, if you're going to write your own crypto, stop and lie down and <laughs> back away slowly. Yeah, there are a few things you should definitely not do and writing crypto for yourself is very much one of them. <laughs> so you need you need a, a set of robust and provable algorithms. You need infrastructure to manage key material and to cycle that through a life cycle. You need equipment that is actually capable of doing uh, encryption and decryption. There's, there's a lot of, dare we say it, undifferentiated heavy lifting involved. Uh, very much so. And one of the things that's kind of intrinsically linked to encryption and the use of encryption to protect data at rest and data in transit, which is kind of what we're talking about is data protection, is how do you grant access to the key material? How do you grant access to people who can do those encryption functions, decryption functions, and manage your keys? So there's a very tight linkage between identity and data protection through the use of encryption. And that all kind of hooks into the AWS platform um, our services use IAM, so you can do fine-grained authorization for who can do what with the crypto services that are then protecting your data. And a lot has changed in the, the realms of security, and particularly security on AWS, driven by a lot of customer input. So, for example, being a, an older time, I remember when a lot of customers would say, 
I love EC2. I wish I could encrypt the EBS volumes easily. And it wasn't easy. You could do it, but it wasn't easy. And now now it is easy. So we're, we're trying to sort of bake it in so uh, encryption is the default rather than the exception. Yeah, and you'll see that as kind of time goes on, more and more services integrate with our uh, crypto services. So KMS is integrated with over 50 services now. Um, there was a release relatively recently, which means you can launch an EC2 instance um, from an unencrypted snapshot and then have it encrypted as it launches. So we're just making it easier for you to do the stuff that's traditionally been reasonably tricky. Um, and you don't have to necessarily understand the specific um, algorithms and underpinnings of the, the crypto services. You can go and get that information. The KMS white paper is amazing. Um, but you're kind of able to get the benefit of a bunch of smart people who've spent a lot of time and a lot of rigor and um, put a lot of work into making these things robust and resilient and highly available. So you can just kind of check a box or put a line of code in a CloudFormation template and get the benefits of that. So let's get into some details. So let's assume I'm, I'm, a, I'm an AWS customer and I've, I've heard Werner speak and I thought, you know what, he makes a good point. Let's encrypt everything we've got. Where do I start? Let's assume I'm not doing any encryption today in my AWS account. Where do I start? Um, so it depends what services you're using. Um, but if we kind of start off with like a fairly typical uh, EC2 um, application talking to a relational database, you can use the KMS service, our key management service, to encrypt the data at rest for the volumes that are attached to your EC2 instance and the volumes that underpin your RDS instance. Um, you can define a, a custom master key in KMS, which is a key that you control and you grant access to, and that is used to then encrypt the other data keys which are used to protect the, the volumes and protect the data in your, applica- in your applications in those volumes. And from a practical point of view, when you launch an EC2 instance or you create an RDS instance, if you're doing it through the console, you can just check a box that says encrypt this and give the ID of the KMS key, and then we will take care of the heavy lifting for you. So then your EC2 instance is running with volume encryption on. That's kind of the easiest way to get started. And so we've talked a bit about KMS. Maybe let's dive into what it's doing because it, it, it serves a very important function because you, you mentioned there's the sort of the, the customer key, the, the main key that you protect, but there's a whole bunch of other sort of mini keys flying around doing stuff over time that change and that, that in the past was the hard thing to manage. So how does, how does KMS work and how does it help our customers? Well, KMS is backed by HSM, so hardware security modules that are um, FIPS 142 verified, and you can look at the SOC reports to um, see the third-party attestations and the audit of how we run our KMS service. The um, customer master key that you that gets created in KMS never leaves the HSM. That's used to do encryption operations of other keys, which are used to protect the, the, the data that you choose to encrypt. So the master key will encrypt a data key, which is then used to encrypt the plain text data, um, and then we actually store. Then we then we encrypt the data key, and we store that next to the encrypted data. So, in order for someone to decrypt it, they need to make a call to KMS to to ask permission for the customer master key to decrypt the data key to then decrypt the data. So, what we're doing is we're handling all of the um, the back and forth of the various encryption and decryption operations of the various key hierarchy that is used to actually protect your data, which is turning plain text data into ciphertext, which can't be read unless it's decrypted. And we make sure that the master key that is responsible for all of that never leaves the whole hardware security module. And we have a bunch of controls and protections around that with the way that we operate the service. 
And this key management is really important because that was always the the complex part, particularly in the early days of encryption, where it was like, oh, look, we can do all this encryption, just just manage these keys and sort of out of the side of the mouse and we'll say, and you've got to rotate keys and delete them and revoke them, and but that's hard, but let's not talk about that. This is kind of dealing with that up front, isn't it? Yeah, and as part of the KMS service, um, we handle key rotation for you. Um, we also kind of handle the fact that um, you can revoke keys and who you can grant access to as well. So there's the operational aspect of key management and um, crypto usage generally is, as you say, definitely one of the tricky things because it's it's easy to go, um, I've got a, I've got an HSM, I've created some keys, tick, I've got the box, um, my auditor is now happy, but how do you run stuff is actually pretty tricky. And that, that applies to kind of not just crypto services, but just how you build stuff in the cloud and off the cloud, like focusing on operations and focusing on the continued availability of um, key material, focusing on logging and monitoring. So who's actually got access to it? Can you prove who's using stuff? That whole operational construct is actually relatively tricky traditionally, and we kind of make it a lot easier for you by the fact that um, we handle automatic rotation, we integrate KMS with CloudTrail so you can see what's going on, um, and we provide you APIs so you have a consistent interface to these services. And, and that operational part is really important because I know that certainly even things that feel simple like backing up, uh, when you're backing up encrypted data, now what do you? how do you restore if you don't have access to the key or the right person doesn't have access to the key or you've lost the key material? That's, that's sort of seemingly trivial but complicated stuff. Yeah, and like, because you can also, you know, you're going to be working in a multi-account environment, you're going to be doing backups, you're going to be storing backups in another environment, you need to make sure that you understand um, what your approach is. Are you decrypting the, the data and then recrypting it in your backup? Are you granting permissions for um, uh, an IAM principal in a backup account to have the ability to call the decrypt function of keys that are in a different account? So there's a few things you need to think about, but because everything is underpinned by IAM and you can define across account the permissions that certain principals have, we still make it reasonably easy for you to functionally do this kind of stuff. You just need to make sure that you've thought about the considerations in your environment uh, where do the keys live? Who has access to them? What parts of your environment are going to need to ac- access them at various parts of your operational workflow? And how do you make sure that when you revoke stuff, you're revoking it appropriately and you're still maintaining access for the, the humans or systems that need access to do encrypt, decrypt and management functions? And, and so we've sort of talked about the fact that you can essentially checkbox or configure most services these days to take advantage of this type of encryption. So just to rattle off a few common ones. So obviously um, EBS, you can you can encrypt, um, DynamoDB, RDS, uh, Kinesis Streams is one that was interesting to me, obviously S3. Uh, I think SQS recently also got encryption as well. Uh, yeah, if you look at the kind of um, the recent releases, there's a lot more services um, and even some that you wouldn't necessarily think um, would have that option, um, things like streaming services and queuing services. Um, and it just gives customers more confident that the data is protected as it's going through the various AWS services and particularly the higher function services, not just sort of the um, the traditional building blocks like RDS and EBS and S3. So it's, it's making it easier to be um, able to protect data at rest broadly across the whole platform. And ideally, we're going to get to a stage where encryption is just ubiquitous and it won't be a choice between encrypting or non-encrypting. It'll be a case of, well, this service encrypts by default. Just tell me the keys that you want to um, use to do the encryption rather than do you want to do the encryption? Mm. And that's going to make it even easier. It's, it's kind of saying, well, 
we're just going to do this. This We're going to take this heavy lifting away from you and make it even easier to be more secure. This comes down to this secure by default type posture that most organisations want to have and encryption is kind of bedrock to that. Yeah, and it's um, it's also giving you like another layer of protection. So, um, for example, if you're um, putting some data in an S3 bucket and you're protecting that data with a KMS key, a custom mask key that you've defined, even if um, somehow you make that um, S3 bucket public, because you still need to have permissions to access the KMS key, that data is not going to be uh, possible to be read or copied out of that bucket because you've got that additional layer because the key policies won't allow. There's no way of doing allow all on a, a KMS key policy. So that's an ide- extra identity level of protection that uses KMS to protect your data. Got kind of a, a belt and braces approach. And we've sort of talked to briefly about the lack of performance impact. Uh, can we demystify a little bit about why that might be, like why we can sort of be so uh, cavalier but confident in, uh, in clicking the button to say encrypt and not worry about downstream effects? Well, the encryption is actually taking place in the KMS service rather than um, happening like on the EC2 instance. So traditionally when we were talking about, oh, it's a you know, 10 20% performance impact of um, doing crypto-type functions on, a, on an application server that you may have built yourself, that application server was doing you know, WebSphere or whatever particular um, application you were choosing to run, but it was also doing the, um, the crypto functions. What we're doing with um, services like CloudHSM and KMS is we're handling that, that um, crypto operation in the AWS service. So you're able to take advantage of a service that is dedicated to doing that functionality and is just integrated with other AWS services. So it's not coming off the, the CPU usage of your EC2 instance. Yeah, not having that overhead makes a big difference and um, encryption clearly is a very CPU-intensive task as well. It tended to spike things where you didn't want them to be spiked. But we've spoken a lot about sort of the, I guess, the internal view, so you know, services we're using and encrypting, et cetera, but a lot of encryption happens between uh, that the sort of end users and, and the customer system, so that, that external HTTPS, TLS-type interaction. And that comes with its own... Uh, challenges and requirements. How do we help customers encrypt their, their externally facing assets? So challenges and requirements is an interesting thing. And I think what you're probably referring to is um, a use case that I think a lot of us have probably experienced at one time or another where a web-facing application breaks because a cert expired and didn't get rotated. This is kind of the mm-hmm. operational construct again. Um, I think a bunch of people may be able to empathise with that. I know I've had... Um, Situations in previous previous jobs where bin paged stuff has broken, and you realise that actually there's a cert that you didn't think was being used on a particular system, or an intermediate cert has expired, and you need to go and find out where it is, who has access to it, who has the ability to do the rotation. Is this the security equivalent of you had one job? <laughs> it's a, it's a little bit like that, and it's kind of speaks to the fact that humans are really good at lots of things. Humans are good at complex problem solving and kind of abstract thought. But we are typically not as good at repetitive tasks, especially if those repetitive tasks are relatively infrequent. Um, even if you have like daily checks, which you shouldn't do daily checks. If you have a daily checklist, you should just be automating it because keep the humans away from the repetitive tasks, help them solve the complex problems. And cert rotation is one of those things. So if you're going to build a web-facing application, things to make it easier are using Certificate Manager. Um, we have two versions. We have uh, public and private. Public is for external-facing uh, certificates. 
trusted up to um, the usual range of um, root CAs. Private certificate manager is for your internal facing resources. So you can create an intermediate CA that's trusted up to your internal certificate authority and use that to issue certificates um, for your internal users. But if we're talking about our external web facing application, you're using uh, AWS certificate manager to issue certificates to load balancers and also um, services like CloudFront. And CloudFront is a really great service. Um, it's a CDN, allows you to serve content closer to your users, um, which means that um, you take advantage of caching and uh, other features in that, in that service, particularly uh, Shield. So you get to take advantage of um, layer three and four DDoS protection for free just by default for serving content using CloudFront. So if you're um, serving a web application, you can stick CloudFront in front of it, use Certificate Manager to deploy certs to CloudFront, um, and Certificate Manager will handle the rotation of the certs as well. Mm-hmm. So you have automation that will update the certs and issue them to the resources that need them. So you're basically making that my application broke because a certificate expired problem completely go away. It's, it's interesting because uh, there's been a big push over the last sort of year or two around encrypting everything on the internet, particularly public-facing stuff. And it's, it's interesting, a lot of the popular browsers now sort of show big scary signs if you're visiting an, an unsafe uh, unsafe site, is what they call it, which is just saying, hey, this is not, a, this is not an encrypted uh, connection. And I think consumers are going to start looking at that more closely and be a little spooked if they see something that's, that's not encrypted. And the ability to layer... CloudFront with the uh, certificate manager capability on top of an existing asset or an S3 static website, for example, as well as a good way to do it. Um, it just makes you present a more secure posture externally without doing a whole bunch of work. Like it's, it's literally, what is it, an hour or two of work to, to get that going? I don't think it's even that. Mm-hmm. And um, if you go on the um, the AWS uh, blog and also if you get, there's a GitHub repo for the um, well-architected security pillar, there's a whole bunch of cloud formation and quick starts to help you bootstrap the configuration in a way that's useful to you. So um, you can kind of start there. It gives you a template of what does a CloudFront distribution in front of an, a static S3 website look like. You plug in the, the certs that you can request through Certificate Manager and Route 53. So you can do everything from within the AWS console to request the certificates, issue those to the appropriate resources, stand up CloudFront in front of your static S3 website in potentially, look, a matter of minutes. Um, and you're definitely right, there's more and more drive to have kind of TLS everywhere. Um, even if we're not talking about kind of transactional websites, it's still good practice to make sure that um, the connection between your end users and your resources is over a, a TLS uh, connection and you're kind of mitigating it against the risk of people modifying traffic that's going back to your users. Um, and because it's so easy, you should definitely do it. It's there's no there's kind of no excuse not to protect data at rest and in transit now. It's like literally the, the click of a button. Yeah, and and the other aspect is is of course pricing. And obviously, often people will go, well, I want the security, but I don't have the money to pay for additional security. So one of the things to keep in mind, for example, is uh, for public SSL TLS certificates that are provisioned through AWS Certificate Manager, they're free. Uh, so we're kind of trying to make it as as easy as possible to be as secure as possible and not kind of charge a, a tax on security. We want people to use it freely as much as possible. Yeah, and it's um, it's kind of – it's well aligned with how I think about security and when I talk to customers. Um, the job of security is not to be the department of no. The job of security is to 
provide services and capability for the business to do the things that they need to do to reach their customers in the most safe and secure way as possible. And providing capability which makes it easy to do the most secure thing is a really big part of that. And that's why I kind of really like working at AWS because I get to talk to customers about how easy it is to do the more secure thing. You can have a conversation that says, well, you can use ACM and you can use CloudFront and the certificate rotation is handled for you. And by the way, it's free. And you can use CloudFront to serve closer to your customers. And by the way, Shield is free. So that's taking advantage of the global scale of our platform to get kind of volumetric DDoS mitigation. And that's actually a pretty tricky problem to solve. But we just provide this to customers for free to make it easier for them to be more secure on the platform, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Yeah, it's, it's important to encourage the, the right behaviours to make the the, uh, the IT world more secure for everyone. And even things that do have a, a cost involved. So um, AWS Key Management Service does have some pricing to cope for all the work that it does, but it's very, very low. There's a free tier of up to 20,000 requests per month. Uh, but even if you're applying it at, at volume, you know, it's only a few bucks a month. It's really, it's <laughs> for most IT organisations, it's not a, not, a, not a deal breaker. Yeah. And if you think how much, the HSMs are not cheap. Mm. Um, and employing people who are appropriately skilled to run and manage a fleet of HSMs is also not a, is a non-trivial cost. So being able to consume a, a key that's on highly available resilient infrastructure that's audited by a third yeah, party yeah. that has compliance attestations, has SOC and PCI and ISO, so you can demonstrate to your auditors or your internal folk how that is being run, that's an incredibly good value service to make you more secure in the cloud. And you're not managing it too. And it's interesting. One of the uh, we've got some some large customers, particularly here in Australia, who uh, who have adopted this sort of modality in their security teams. And the security team ended up being the advocate for this because in the past they've been kind of fighting the uh, ROI TCO battle of deploying sophisticated key management and encryption infrastructure in their environment. And it kind of kind of, they got the no <laughs> from the <laughs> from the accountant saying this is really expensive and I don't quite understand what you're trying to do here. Whereas this was a method for them to say, hey, we can just weave this into everything and we're not even going to notice the cost and away we go. Yeah, and it's a way of the security team actually engaging with their developers. So there's um, a couple of lenses. There's the technology aspect, which is as a security person, I'm going to say we want to protect data at rest, but I'm not just saying here is a policy, we want to protect data at rest, you should encrypt stuff. I'm saying we want to encrypt data at rest, we want to, we want to protect um, our customers' data here is the policy, but here is the pattern for how you do it. Here is the service I would like you to use. This is really easy. It fits into the way that developers work. It's not calling out to something that's kind of esoteric that they have to learn and understand. It's literally when you build your infrastructure, when you when you build a ECS cluster and you're managing the EC2 instances that are underneath that, protect those, protect those volumes with KMS and... If you're using CloudFormation, it's this line. If you're using the console, it's check this box, which means that we're meeting developers where they are, so we're making it easy for people to build more secure applications. And as a security person, I have the comfort that I'm giving prescriptive advice that's useful to people and is actionable. So it means that the engineers building applications in my organization are actually doing the most secure thing. And it also helps with that kind of cultural thing, which is the second second part of this. It's trying to bring security and development closer together. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to solve the same problem, which is building applications for our customers in the way that is maintaining customer trust. 
from a security perspective, I want people to have certain configuration and I want people to have um, control objectives met and I want people to be safe and secure and want to have visibility. From a dev perspective, they want to build functions and features, but they also understand that if you're having customer data in your application, you need to take care of it. Because one of the fundamental things for all of our customers is making sure that they maintain the trust of their customers in the same way that we maintain trust with our customers with things like the SOG reports and the KMS white paper and being transparent about how we run services. Our customers can take advantage of that when they kind of talk to their customers. And that's kind of helping everybody kind of broadly be more secure, which is kind of what we're actually trying to do here. And this speaks to this evolution of, of software development and, and sort of the move from DevOps to DevSecOps with the, with the Sec security being really a key component of that. And I think the difference is because the security team, if they're so inclined, can now provide code templates, can provide automated configuration, can provide sensible defaults to the developers that firstly help the developers get their job done quicker. <laughs> and as a developer, you're trying to get functions out the door and you want to move quickly. And also, instead of sort of writing up these um, arcane policies and procedures that are locked away in big documents that no one actually reads, the developers can be secure by default and use things much more easily and also learn about what security is because it's its own discipline. And I I think we do probably a fairly poor job of teaching uh, developers how to develop securely, which is why you come across, you know, password files without hashes and salts and uh, just stuff that you you shake your head and go, this shouldn't be. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's it speaks to the fact that communication across organizations is sometimes hard. And security has traditionally been seen as a very kind of siloed, um, you have to be a security person to understand the security stuff. Um, making sure that you actually explain to people what you expect of them. Because like the traditional experience of a security architect in a large financial services organization, which is kind of mainly my background, um, You'd get engaged with a project, somebody would hand you a Visio diagram, you'd draw X's where the firewalls went, and then you'd kind of sort of hand it back and then move on. This is not super useful on either side of the, the conversation. What you want to do is work with people to help them understand why certain things are important. Because you mentioned DevSecOps, and DevSecOps is not a team in the same way that DevOps is not a team. We're not going to hire us some DevOps. It's about how you think about building applications, how you think about security, because security is everyone's job. Mm. Um, the job of the security function in an organization, particularly a large enterprise, is to provide guidance, to provide those reusable patterns, to interpret the kind of range of regulatory um, compliance requirements that most organizations are subject to, interpret the requirements of the internal risk team, and then kind of provide that, ideally codified, to the dev teams. Because if you've got a policy that says, we must protect data at rest by encrypting volumes. You can write a test for that. You know that when an EC2 instance is spun up or when an EC2 instance is defined, you know what the configuration looks like to see if volumes are protected using KMS. So you don't need to have a spreadsheet where you go and ask people, did you encrypt the volumes with KMS? You can actually put a test in. You can use a config rule, and you can even pass CloudFormation before people launch resources to give them fast feedback to say, you're about to launch a stack. It doesn't have... EBS volumes encrypted with KMS using the key that we define, you probably shouldn't launch that stack because it doesn't meet our requirements. But here is a link to the Confluence page or here is a link to the, the pattern or the cloud formation that allows you to do that. Then the developer can take that feedback, immediately modify their template, launch the stack and get on with their day. And that's a 15, 20 second turnaround rather than 
a security person emailing them. <laughs> Two weeks later, somebody turns up and says, that thing you built in the previous sprint, that wasn't really what we wanted. The devs moved on to a completely different headspace and you're constantly fighting to catch up. So meeting people where they are, providing fast feedback, codifying as much as possible. Um, you mentioned Werner talked about encrypt like everyone's watching. Um, another thing that you hear a lot from um, AWS folk when they're talking at um, summits and reInvent, et cetera, is automate all of the things. Mm. Um, our CISO talks about um, how we handle that internally. We have a really large amount of automation that captures things that can be programmatically dealt with. And it's only when something needs a human to look at that it's escalated to a human, which means you get massive consistency, massive amounts of um, um, automated response. So you're not kind of waiting for humans to get involved in the process, which just makes things more streamlined. Um, we talk about you know, security being the thing where you can move fast and stay secure rather than it being a, a trade-off between one or the other that it used to be traditionally. And those cycle times become really important because it's not just detecting the vulnerability or detecting there's a problem but remediation. And that's where things like guard duty come into place and, and detecting that something's going on, but it, then having a degree of automation that fixes it. You, you spoke a bit about that that sort of verification that security is taking place and, and you can obviously build tests into your continuous integration and you should, uh, but you can also use things like uh, like config to, to check if things are staying true. So for example, we said, you know, we've got a policy where uh, all EBS volumes need encryption on. How do you know it still has encryption on a year later? Um, well, Config is a great service. Um, and it's one of the things that feeds into Security Hub, which was a, a service we announced at um, last reInvent, um, which gives you kind of broad visibility of your, the security posture in your environment. Um, but Config can be configured to fire on state change of resource. So if you think about the life cycle, somebody builds an application, it's passed the tests, the CloudFormation is valid, they've launched um, an application stack, say it's on EC2 and RDS to continue this example. Um, it's aligning with policy, it's doing the things we want to do, it's encrypted appropriately. Um, if somebody makes a change to that resource, config can fire and the check runs again and maybe somebody has made a change to the EC2 instance and they've, changed, they've mounted a different volume um, and it's not encrypted, the config rule will capture that and then again, provide notification. Um, you can feed into a seam, so you can do dashboarding and that kind of stuff. But the continuous assurance or continuous compliance view of the world, so when things change, are they still doing um, the things that we wanted them to, is a really important part of that. So not just kind of upfront when we define stuff, but also as we run stuff. And then exposing it um, via a seam or via dashboarding um, or via Security Hub or something like that to give people visibility of what's going on in their environment. It's kind of the the, the analogue of the, the key rotation problem we spoke about before We kind of over time you've got to rotate keys and most software assets live for a really long period of time and like you said, just because someone cast their eye over it at the start and yet everything's encrypted, it's good, doesn't mean in six months, 12 months, five years, it's still good. So this this provides that constant feedback so you're just, just maintaining that, that correct posture and I guess from an audit perspective, it reduces the complexity of the audit as well. Yeah, so you should be in the situation where an auditor could walk into your office unexpected and you don't panic and run around and try and find <laughs> where you store the, the spreadsheets in the file. Buy them cabinet. a coffee, <laughs> take them out. Quickly, let's point the auditor to the, the good filing the cabinet. Good with the, um, you should just be able to kind of go, oh, an auditor's turned up. Um, we know our posture now because we have continuous assurance. We have the ability to not only report on the stuff as, as it's being built, 
stuff as it um, exists in the environment because things run for a, a decent period of time. Not everybody is able to refactor their applications, um, do a complete um, rehydration every kind of day, week, month or whatever. Certain applications don't lend themselves to that, but we can still take advantage of the programmatic nature of the cloud to understand what our posture is at any given time. And when it changes to something that we don't want it to be, we can provide feedback and then we can rapidly um, remediate that. Now, one thing we've sort of touched on a fair bit is obviously the AWS Key Management Service or KMS. There's also another service out there called AWS Cloud HSM. And I think it might be useful for our listeners to understand where you might use one versus the other and why there are two. Um, so KMS is symmetric encryption, integrates with kind of over 50 services. Um, Cloud HSM is more like a, a traditional HSM that people may be familiar with. It does asymmetric encryption, so it can do key signing. Um, and it um, is where you're building applications using um, um, libraries like uh, PKCS uh, 11 to integrate with Cloud HSM to kind of off- offload SSL functions. So for example, you could... Um, have an Apache web server or a load balancer and offload the um, um, the SSL processing to the Cloud HSM. Um, Cloud HSM operates in a slightly different way to KMS. You spin it up in a VPC, so it's accessed from an EC2 instance in your environment. We still manage the underlying hardware. It's just you call an API to spin up a Cloud HSM cluster, uh, but you're then responsible for defining the key operator, defining the administrator, defining permissions of... Um, who can, act, who can make calls to the HSM to do the crypto functions. So it's for a, a lower set, of, a smaller number of use cases, but it's for people who want to do sort of very specific um, operations. And that's, I guess, part of the, the ethos that we're trying to provide services and tools that work for a, a broad variety of use cases. And you know, one size doesn't always fit all. So this lets you use the right tool for the job. Also, depending on your um, uh, industry requirements, et cetera, there might be some very specific needs. So that's why that fits in there. Yeah, and it's um, we want to provide people tools that are useful for their um, particular use cases. And when we talk about protection of data and um, crypto services, it's not just KMS and Cloud HSM um, and Certificate Manager. There's also things like um, Secrets Manager because um, at some point in your environment, not everything you build is necessarily going to be able to use IAM roles for system-to-system auth. So you you're probably going to have some secrets. So maybe database credentials or API keys and that kind of stuff. With Secrets Manager, you can store them securely in Secrets Manager, backed by KMS with a KMS with a CMK that you can choose. So you can still have the same rigor around like, um, running the service permissions to call KMS to do the kind of encrypt decrypt operations and provide permissions not only to Secrets Manager but to the, the KMS keys underneath. Um, and then Secrets Manager will allow you to request delivery of um, the secrets either to a system because it um, provides some SDKs so you can build it into your applications like from Lambda functions to applications running on top of EC2 um, but also handle the rotation of secrets. So in the same way that ACM helps with rotation of certificates, Secrets Manager helps with the rotation of secrets. So why, why is rotation important? We're sort, of, we're sort of touched on it and going, oh, big, scary, difficult. And so you could sort of sit back and say, well, if it's so hard, just don't rotate. Uh, why is rotation of keys critical for good security posture? So if you have long-lived credentials, API keys, whatever, um, you want to minimise the exposure. Um, so in the event of um, people knowing them, the longer the key is, or the longer the secret is um, not rotated, the more chance there is for someone to use it for um, an unintended purpose. So 
NIST provides some kind of garden guidelines on rotation, and the more frequently you rotate your keys, the lower the window that somebody could use a, a leaked credential. The flip side of that is rotation is typically kind of hard. So somebody, say you've got a database administrator, they change the, the password that your application is using to talk to the database. They then need to tell the application owner what that um, password is so you can update some configuration file on an application. There's potentially a window where the database password has changed, but the application doesn't know about it. So a bunch of stuff breaks. So your website looks like it's down or whatever. Whereas with something like Secrets Manager, Secrets Manager has kind of native integration into um, RDS and um, DocumentDB and Redshift. Um, it can handle the rotation in directly in those services, or if there's other stuff, you can write Lambda functions to integrate with other sources. It will, on a schedule, rotate the um, credentials, and then you can have put some hooks into your application code that detects a authentication failure from your app server to your database, for example, have it make a call to Secrets Manager, get the newly rotated credentials, update the configuration, and then um, proceed proceed on your way. Um, there's been a few demos at various um, kind of dev days and, and re-events which showed this really well, where people have got a, a running application and they trigger Secrets Manager to change the database, pa- database password and the application catches this, updates the secret and keeps going without any need for human intervention. So it's another thing where it's, making it easy to do the, the right thing operationally as well as um, just by kind of checking box. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is a really important thing for that long-term security posture. And one of the times, you know, when you see, it's often interesting when you sort of unpack um, famous hacks and vulnerabilities that have taken place, et cetera, you see once people get into an environment and they start moving laterally and then they get creds, and when creds aren't being rotated, they can be there for years using the same database logon, et cetera, just happily siphoning data off because no one's rotating the key. Yeah, I worked in a, a, a company a long time ago. Um, we had an internal application, and every time we tried to change the database password, a bunch of stuff broke. Um, and in the end, our change management people said, stop doing this change. <laughs> it's detrimental to the business. And people would make a business decision that mm. we were breaking the application because we weren't able to kind of orchestrate the various systems that were talking to this database and there were some things that we didn't know were even talking to it. Um, so we ended up not rotating database credentials for a really long period of time until we'd solved that. So it's something that you do see in environments. So making it easier to do that is super helpful. And we sort of touched on some of the, the nuances of encryption and the, the way that the key material travels with the ciphertext, etc. The, the KMS white paper is probably the best place for someone who's new to this domain to sort of dip their toe in, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah, the KMS white paper is a really great place to start. Um, it kind of explains exactly how all of this this stuff works, how it works under the covers, and gives you a really great level of transparency around how we operate the system. So, um, for example, once the keys are created inside the HSMs that back KMS, no operator has access to them. There's no single person who, who can get access to these. When we... A patch and update the software on the HSMs. Um, the code is verified by multiple people, and it's a it's a fairly high friction event for the service team. So it's it's hard for us to update the code intentionally because we want to maintain the rigor, we want to maintain the the compliance, we want, want to maintain the, kind of the FIPS accreditation, and then we update the clusters kind of one at a time. Um, we completely refresh the HSMs as part of that process, so they get completely zeroed out. When we do updates, there's no key material on the HSMs, and this is something that um, 
the GM of the KMS services talked about a lot in kind of public events. Um, I recommend you go and have a look at the um, the talk from last reInvent, um, and he, he talks really well about the rigor and how we handle um, like the running of the KMS mm. service. And we'll put a, put some links in the show notes to that. And I think the important thing is not even just us saying, hey, this is what we do so you know what it is. It's it's those third-party attestations. It's it's PCI for a credit card. It's, it's SOC. It's ISO. It's all those major – uh, accreditating bodies that look at this in detail and say, yes, you are doing the things the right way. Yeah, and that's kind of part of maintaining customer trust is like getting a third party to audit it, providing those accreditation as those certifications. And a lot of organisations use SOC as the baseline of their kind of service governance approach because it's it describes how we run the service from an operational perspective. Um, the um, Q2 SOC reports came out last week. Uh, there were 31 more services, which takes the number of services covered by SOC to over 100 now. Um, that's excellent work from our compliance team and the various service teams to um, to get another 30 services or 31 services, sorry, um, in SOC. Um, notable ones for this release were Guard Duty, Security Hub, um, and Secrets Manager. Mm. Um, and even and for our kind of Australian listeners, um, the IRAP protected package was out um, a few months ago. Um, there was a talk on Summit about you know, kind of what that means for Australia, not just for public sector customers, but for commercial customers. And there's a whole bunch of services on, on there, including Cloud HSM and KMS um, for customers building um, protected level workloads in Australia. Yeah, there's definitely no excuse not to use uh, these security capabilities. I was reflecting on Werner's statement about dance like no one's watching and crypt like everyone is, and um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners, probably like myself, aren't big fans of dancing, uh, maybe because we're just really bad dancers, I don't know. But I think uh, whether you choose to dance or not, encrypting is not negotiable now. What do you reckon? I think it's very, very true that I'm not going to be doing any dancing, <laughs> but um, I'm definitely encrypting all of my stuff. Um even down to uh, doing kind of blob crypto. So you can, you know, from the AWS CLI, you can make a call to KMS, you can pass it some plain text and you can get back ciphertext. So even if you want to do that kind of individual um, encryption of particular parts of your application, you can use services like Cloud HSM and KMS to do that and make that easy as well as the whole volume encryption. Paul, thanks so much for coming on the show and uh, diving deep with us into the wonderful world of encryption. Thank you very much. Great to be here. And thanks everyone for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com is the place to do that. Do tell others about the podcast. It's good for people to know. And until next time, keep on building.